So Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to look at the end, the, 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 the church in Thyatira. The church in Thyatira, verses 18 through 29. So this was the church of corruption. It was the church in adultery. It's the fourth message that Jesus gave. And it was addressed to the angel of the church in Thyatira. It was the Lord's longest message and it was sent to the church in the smallest city. Thyatira was a thriving city. It was located about 40 miles southeast of Pergamos. The city started as a Macedonian colony by Alexander the Great after the destruction of the Persian Empire. It was located in a rich farming area. And Thyatira was famous for making purple dye. And several references to the trade unions that made cloth during that time are found in secular writings. Wherever these unions were found, idolatry and immorality were usually found there as well. Idolatry and immorality were two big enemies of the early church. And it's interesting that Jesus would choose this very small church in a little-known city for such an important letter. But the message dealt with a lot more than what was going on at the time in the church at Thyatira. Thyatira is mentioned in the book of Acts, verses 16, 14 through 15, where Lydia got saved. It reads, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart. Notice those words. The Lord opened her heart. It's always that way. The Lord has to open our hearts if we're going to receive Him. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things that were spoken by Paul. Now, nowhere in Scripture does it say that the gospel was preached in Thyatira. And it's possible that the gospel may have gotten to Thyatira through Lydia, who may have been the instrument of of evangelizing that God used. And Lydia's job as a seller of purple is evidence of the thriving trade business there in purple cloth originating in Thyatira. And out of all the seven churches, this little church gets the harshest letter. You see, it's not just the big churches that God watches. He sees all churches, even the smallest. Thyatira is is said to have disappeared by the end of the second century. So let's begin now with chapter 2 of Revelation, beginning with verse 18. And Jesus said, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write these things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. The city had a special temple to Apollo. Now, Apollo was the sun god. And that may have been the reason why Jesus introduced himself as the Son of God. And it's the only time that Jesus uses this title in the book of Revelation. Jesus introduces himself as the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. 
Now, in chapter 1 of Revelation, verses 14 and 15, there's a similar description. Where Jesus is pictured as the righteous judge who, knowing these things, or knowing all things, can search out every evil. And His sovereign judgment. That means He doesn't need anybody to help them to judge His people. His sovereign judgment deals with all of those who don't measure up to His perfect righteousness. And the main difference in this, in this description of Jesus is that, is that he's named the Son of God here in chapter 2 compared to the name in chapter 1 where he's called the Son of Man. Now the title, the Son of Man, is the title that stresses Jesus' humanity and his messianic character. His title here is consistent with the character of judgment that's declared upon the church. You see, their leaving from the true worship of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was so serious, it called for a time of refreshing the people of His deity. We need the same reminder today. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is God. Almighty, all-powerful. We're being tested today, church. Tested today. Are we going to pass the test? The description of his eyes as a flame of fire it speaks of burning, of burning righteous anger and purifying judgment. And in a similar way, his feet are said to be like fine brass. Brass in the Bible always symbolizes judgment. So it represents Jesus here as a glorious judge. Verse 19, now Jesus commends their work, their faith, and their love. Let's look at verse 19. He says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Thyatira's works were more impressive now than they were when they first started. They got better. In other words, the church was showing a lot of love, agape love. A lot of selfless and sacrificial service to others. They were showing a lot of service. Voluntary service. For the benefit and the help of those needing it. And it was freely given by the people. And we need service today in the church of Jesus Christ. Man, the labor is great. Man, but the servants are few. And as I said earlier, this isn't a time to be stepping away. It's a time to be stepping up. To strengthen the church of God. To be a witness to the church of... uh, 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 To the people of the church of God. The God that we serve. They were showing their faith, a lot of faith, faithfulness and loyalty, which is sorely lacking in the church today. Patience, which is a positive steadfastness or endurance or perseverance. It's persevering through the tough times. It's the perseverance that shows the true servant of God. All of these good works were getting better all of the time and Thyatira seemed to be. 
seemed to be almost the perfect church. But even though these works are wonderful and they're important qualities to the church and the church needs to have them and they, and they need to be seen in the church, they cannot take place of, the, of sound doctrine, which the word, is the word of God, and godly living. Sound doctrine and godly living go together. But these two things were quickly fading in the church in Thyatira. The church at Thyatira was guilty of terrible sin. So, so Jesus starts to deal with them in verse 20. And here's the condemnation. Notice in verses 20 through 23. After complimenting them and commending them about their works, he says, nevertheless, in verse 20, I have a few things against you. And here's why. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Even though Jesus had a lot of good things to say about the church at Thyatira, the congregation, there was still a lot more that he found to expose and condemn in the congregation there. Because you see, no amount of loving and selfless service can make up for allowing even the smallest amount of evil. You see, the church in Thyatira, it was allowing a false prophetess to influence the people to compromise by leading the church to commit fornication and to eat things that were sacrificed to idols. Some believe that there was actually a woman leader in the church at Thyatira. Now, whether Jezebel was the real name or supposed name of this false prophetess, or it was just a characterization be, uh, given to her by Jesus, the spiritual similarity with the Jezebel of the Old Testament is easy to see. They are much alike. Now, this woman probably wasn't really named Jezebel because it was such a dishonorable name. It probably wouldn't have been given to a child. The name is mostly, mostly symbolic. Jezebel was the idolatrous queen who persuaded Israel to add Baal worship to their religious ceremonies. And her seductive teaching was like the doctrine of Balaam that Jesus condemned in the church of Pergamos in chapter 2, verse 14. Now, she was one of the most evil characters in the Old Testament. And she tried to combine the worship of Israel with the worship of the idol of Baal. She did everything that she could to do away with all true worship of the Lord God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and influenced her weak husband. In 1 Kings 16.33, we read, And Ahab, that was her husband, made a wooden image. 
Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who, be, who were before him. Jezebel herself had a very horrible history of evil. She was responsible for killing Naboth and taking his vineyard for her husband just because he wanted Oh, honey, I sure love to have that, that vineyard of Naboth. I want it. So she goes out and has Naboth killed so that the vineyard can now belong to her husband. She had also killed nearly all the prophets of the Lord. And she did what she could to kill the prophet Elijah. And she was so evil that Elijah prophesied that she would come to a sudden end. And that her body would be eaten by dogs. And that was a prophecy that was fulfilled in 2 Kings chapter 9. Thyatira was known for its many trade unions. And this created a social problem. One commentator said, Now since membership in trade unions didn't basically involve anything more than joining in the common meal, which was probably dedicated to some pagan idol, but was exactly in this respect meaningless for the so-called enlightened Christian to be a member was looked at in liberal circles to be okay. Because for business or social reasons, it seemed almost necessary to belong to some union. But it's thought that these union meetings often ended up in drunken orgies. That's why the reference here by Jesus to sexual immorality, fornication. The prophetess was supporting a loose attitude when it came to morally and religiously. Jezebel had seemingly led the Thyatira church into a false Christian imitation of this system. And it might have been because it was the easy way of winning converts to Christianity. You know, we want an easy Christianity. We want the easy road. It's our nature. You know, and this, this seemingly, this, this false Christian imitation here. Of Jezebel, I mean, hey, who wouldn't want that? Hey, I can worship what I want. I can worship how I want. I can live the way I want. That's the kind of thinking that believes all roads lead to God. But Jesus made it very clear in John four twenty four: Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus made it clear there is a right way and a wrong way to worship God. But this fornication here that Jesus was, was, was talking about, it wasn't just physical adultery. It was religious adultery, spiritual adultery also. And Jesus had said, I'm not going to, I can't take this. Not going to tolerate it anymore. The word adultery that's used in verse 22 here is is referred more specifically to the violation of the marriage vow. Those in Thyatira who had sinned in this way, they hadn't only violated the moral law of God, but they had sinned against their covenant relationship with the Lord, which obligated them to inward purity as well as outward purity. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.15, he, 
He who called you is holy. You also be holy in all your conduct. Why? Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. That's a command. Not a suggestion. Not a request. You be holy because your God that you serve is holy. It's a command that is based on the character of God. God calls us. But it's our duty to respond to the call. God gives the pattern. And it's our responsibility to put that pattern into practice. God is the model of all holiness. 1 John 2, 6 says, He who says he abides in him, in other words, the person who says they are in Christ, ought also himself to walk just as Christ walked. The privilege and the great calling of, of, of us being God's children which we are, requires us to diligently follow the example of the one who called us. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 5.21, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. You see, what's in the heart will be seen in the life. That's why Solomon said, Keep your heart with all diligence because out of it, that is the heart, springs the issues of a life. A healthy heart, a healthy life. A sick heart, a sick life. An immoral heart, an immoral life. A sinful heart, a sinful life. A holy heart, a holy life. What's in your heart will be seen in your life. And as a result, true holiness will show itself in every part of your daily life. It'll show in all of your conduct, no matter where you are. The commentator Philip said this, Be holy in every department of your lives. True holiness is totally related to all parts of your life. That is in public, that is religious, that is personal, and it's open to all human relationships. We don't, you know, just be holy when we're at church and then act like the world does at work or out in public. Holiness and morals cannot be separated into different areas of life. Holiness and morals can't be separated because you see, true moral behavior is patterned after the character of God. And if God is holy, I am to be holy all the time in all areas of my life. And this command is required by the highest source, God's holiness. God's holiness. The holiness of God is the greatest reason for man's holiness. Be holy because I am holy. And God's command to be holy shows that he expects those that he calls to be holy. Is he your father? Is heaven your home? 
Is your life temporary here? You're just visiting. You're just passing through. You're a pilgrim. Then your character, which suits you for heaven, has to be like his. You don't get this holiness by a ritual separation from corruption. Nor a formal devotedness to divine service. Like, you know, oh, well, you know what? I'm going to be good. No, no, I'm going to separate myself from these things. That holiness comes by the transference of the holiness of God through Christ in you. Through His atonement. Peter said, we are made partakers of His divine nature. 2 Peter 1.4 Holiness is God's choice for the moral condition of man. God said in Genesis 1.27, So God created man in His own image, in the image of God He created him. We're created in the image of God. What is the image of God? Holiness. And because of God's nature, it's only right that we should resemble Him. Like Father, like Son. And the possibility of being holy determines our duty to be holy. And because we can be holy, we should be holy. When we think about the nature of God, the will of God, the call of God, the command of God, the promises of God, the provision and power of God, and the eternal purposes of God. The clear, sure, unmistakable conclusion is that without holiness, we will not see the Lord. Hebrews twelve fourteen. Without holiness, we will not see the Lord. You see, our final salvation hinges on holiness in life. God is holy. Fallen man must become holy. Holiness is original with God. That's, that's who He is. He can't be anything else. And that holiness can only be imparted by God to us. With man, holiness comes from God and is dependent upon the grace of God. Seeking holiness, getting holiness, keeping holiness, and living it is an ongoing duty of believers as individuals, and as churches. God's holiness produces a reverent awe in all true believers. He's not just our father. He's our judge too. And all sin offends God. All sin. Why? Because God is holy and because he hates sin and because it breaks his heart. It breaks his heart. And because of the goodness of God, He rescues us from the destruction of sin. And by God's infinite wisdom, by God's wisdom, man understands how salvation from sin can be attained 
And by His power, we can achieve it. Because holiness is the nature of God and it's consistent with His purpose for man. All Christians should live in fear of the day of judgment because it's coming. And that they're going to be condemned by a holy judge who can't excuse sin or approve of an unholy life. Peter said in 1 Peter 1.17, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Reverence of God. The reverential fear is the very opposite of the lack of concern of holiness. And for carnal security that describes so many who say they're Christians today. It is impossible for a person to belong to a holy God. Without that relationship being reflected in holy living. Again, it is impossible to say, you know what? I serve a holy God. Without, without that holiness being seen in my life. This is the basic nature of the biblical idea of holiness. Now, it is a moral impossibility for man to love God and then knowingly reject holiness. How can I love God and reject holiness? So Jezebel here is the picture of of, of devious corruption and a symbol of immorality and idolatry. The Jezebel and Thyatira had a similar influence on the church and she broke down all boundaries of moral separation from the wicked world. According to verse 21, Jesus said that he gave her time to repent. Think about that. He gave her... She was given time to repent. That is to change her mind, to change her ways, but she refused. And and God gives every single person a chance to repent of their sins and to turn away from that evil life of sin. To change their mind and their direction. But she refused. And terrible judgment was brought against her that she would be cast into the bed of affliction. And those who shared her evil behavior, Jesus said, would be cast into great tribulation. So not only was the church at Thyatira tolerant of evil, but it was proud and unwilling to repent. And you know what? That is what will keep you from, from repentance. Pride. I don't need God. You know, what will my family think? What will my, my boyfriend or girlfriend think? Or my husband or my wife or my friends? What will they think? Pride is one of the biggest things that will keep you out of heaven. That will keep you from repenting and making things right with God. Now Jesus here gives her followers a chance to repent in verse 22. The repentance always turns away judgment because God is not willing 
that anyone should perish. God does not want anybody to go to hell. He does not want anybody to perish. That's why He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. That you might receive His forgiveness for your sins. Therefore, when you die, you're going to be with Christ in heaven for all eternity. Verse 23. I will kill her children, Jesus said, with death and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Jesus now in verse 23 threatens to make this church at Thyatira an example to not tolerate sin. Now when he says I will kill her children, it's not literally the children of the people in the congregation. When he says, I will kill her children, he's talking about the followers. The followers of Jezebel and in, and in her immoral and idolatrous teachings and ways. He says, I will kill all her followers with death. I will strike her followers dead. God would judge the false prophetess and her followers once and for all and show everybody, he says, that that he searches the minds and the hearts. He knows what's going on inside of us. Psalm 139, David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and you are acquainted with all of my ways. For, is there not, for there is not one word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You have hedged me behind and before and, and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? There's nowhere where you can go to get away from God. Nowhere. The psalmist said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Where can I hide from you? Where can I go where you can't see me and the things that I do? You see, God knows what you do. He knows where you go. He knows what you are. He knows what you think. He knows what you love. He knows what you desire. You can't hide any sin from Jesus Christ, whether it's obvious or hidden. These serious words were addressed to the church at Thyatira, but they apply to anyone who dares to change the purity of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and spoil the worship of the Lord with idolatrous and heathen practices. Verse 24 and 25 for the exhortation. Well, let me finish with what I left off where he says that... that, um, you can't hide any sin, obvious or hidden. And, and that, again, these were serious words addressed to Thyatira. And they applied to anybody who dares change the purity of the truth of God and, and spoil the worship of the Lord with idolatrous and heathen practices. So, it says, so the point is that his judgment is, is not blind or unfair. Think, remember this now. Because he said in verse 23, this judgment is going to be given out to each one. Notice, according to your works, you will be judged based on the things that you did in your life. 
And I said before, he sees all things. He knows all things. Hidden and exposed. So you will not be able to stand before God and say, you're not fair. He said, well, let me show you. Let me just show you your past life. The things that you did. His judgment is and always we will be fair. Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, 8, that he is a righteous judge. A righteous judge. He has all of the facts. Now, the exhortation in verses 24 through 25. Jesus said, Now to you I say, then to the rest in Thyatira. Notice, as many as do not have this doctrine, that is, who are not following the, the, the doctrine of Jezebel, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast, notice, hold fast what you have till I come. Verse 25, again, but hold fast that to that uh, which you have till I come. In these two verses, Jesus gives a comforting word to those who haven't accepted Jezebel's doctrine, to her teaching. This small godly remnant is singled out. They're continuing their true, true testimony for Jesus Christ. The godly remnant here is described as not, as not having or holding the teaching of Jezebel or knowing the depths or the deep things of Satan. This could refer to the Nicolaitans who criticized the other Christians for not knowing the deep things of God. That was a favorite expression or saying or phrase of the Gnostics. Oh, if you come over to us, you know, we can teach you the deep things of God. But these so-called deep things, as they say, as Jesus said, were really the deep things of Satan. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11, but God has revealed to us but God has revealed them to us. That is the deep things to us through His Spirit. You want to learn the deep things of God is through the truth of the Holy Spirit. He said, for the Spirit teaches, I'm sorry, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. Jesus said, I will put no other burden on you. Jesus was saying, hey, I have no special demands to put on you. I have no other burdens to put on you. He says, all I want you to do is to hold fast what you've been taught. I want you to hold fast in resisting, staying away from the sacrificial feasts and the evil practices that come with those evil practices until I come. Hold fast. Resist those sacrificial feasts that that Jezebel is trying to get you to take part in. Along with the evil practices of that worship. He says, resist those things. Stay holy. Stay pure until I come for you. In other words, the church is simply to wait for Jesus Christ. This is the first mention in Revelation of the Lord's coming. The rapture for the church. Now the reward in verses 26 through 28. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end to him, I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessel vessels. Verse 28. Oh, I'm sorry. And also I have received from my that I have also received from my father and I will give him the morning star. Jesus said to he who overcomes. A repeated phrase, Jesus adds these words, and keeps my works until the end. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end. This is where the reward comes. 
At Thyatira, the battle was to be won by steadfast faithfulness to the work of Jesus Christ. For example, to the purity of the Christian life, we are to be steadfast in the purity of the Christian life as opposed to the works of Jezebel. 1 John 5, 4-5 says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who, he, who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What Jesus promised is that those who keep his word to the end will be given power and authority over the nations. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 22, He who endures to the end will be saved. And closely following the prediction of a second coming is this first reference to the millennial kingdom rule of Jesus Christ. The overcoming Christians are promised places of authority. A promised position of judgment over the nations of the world. Verse 27. He he shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. Psalm Psalm verse 2, 8 and 9 is also where this is where this comes from. Verse 27 is from Psalm 2, uh, 8 and 9. The word rule here means literally to shepherd. There won't be just uh, that of executing judgment, but there will also be administering mercy and direction. Shepherding to those who are the sheep as compared to the goats. The rod of iron that Jesus mentions here is thought to be the shepherd's crook which was tipped with iron to make a suitable weapon against enemies or wild animals that would come in and attack the sheep. The wicked are compared to the potter's vessels that will be dashed to pieces. They will be no more. To the overcomers, he and she who overcomes is also given the promise of the morning star, which is Jesus Christ. Man, the greatest reward that any, over, any overcomer can ever receive is Jesus himself personally. The promise in verse 28 suggests that God's people will be so closely related to Jesus that Jesus will belong to them. He will be ours. In closing, in studying these first four churches, we can see the dangers that still exist for the Christian today. Like Ephesus, we can be busy and we can be passionate and we can be right doctrinally and yet lose our devotion to the Lord Jesus. Or we can be like Pergamos who had settled in the world. They got comfortable in the world. They got complacent and they compromised their Christianity. They accepted the ways of the world. Or we could be like Thyatira. Our works can be getting better and better every day. Yet lack the, the kind of discernment that we need to keep the church pure. And like Pergamos and Thyatira, we may be so tolerant of evil that we give the Lord. That we grieve the Lord. And, and we, it, it, we invite judgment. We bring judgment upon ourselves. God's exhortation to these churches, except Smyrna, is repent. Change your minds. Turn around from the direction that you're going. It's not just to lost sinners that need to repent, but also disobedient Christians. 
Not just sinners that need to repent, but also disobedient Christians. And if we don't repent and we don't care of the sin, take care of sin in our lives and in our congregations, the Lord may judge us and He re- might remove our lampstand, as He said in chapter 2, verse 5. How sad it is when a local church slowly departs from the faith and loses its witness for Jesus Christ. Let that not be us. Let us be that strong witness in spite of the circumstances. In spite of what's going on right now. Let us be a light. Let us not hang our harps on the willow trees. Let us not lose our song for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us show the world that we serve an awesome master, a loving master. And that we love him. How? Through our obedience and through our service to him. Verse 29. And I will give him... I'm sorry, verse 20. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This request, it's a call or a charge or a command made to all of the churches. It's a call for the stewardship that involves three things. First, the ability to hear. He who has an ear. Let us use the ability that we have. Let us use the resources, the advantages that God has given you and me to honor Him. Second, the character of hearing. Let Him hear. Let us be attentive, be interested, be respectful. Then the communication for hearing. What the Spirit says. What the Spirit says is the Word of God. Too many times we use our ears only to hear bad things and not the good things that God has for us. Father, we thank you so much, God, for your word. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness, God. Father, we thank you for the rain and we thank you for the sunshine, Lord. For the good things and the bad things. For prosperity and adversity, Lord. For for Solomon said to praise them both because they're both appointed by you. To thank you for both because they're both appointed by you, God. And to help remember we are right where you want us to be, God. And, and there can't be any better place. And Father, I pray for those here this morning, God, that, Lord, for those who may have been or are disobedient, God, and have things going on in their life, God, that shouldn't be, God, that they would repent. That, God, we would be stepping up That's servants not stepping away. Not getting bummed out, not getting caught up in the times and the things that we hear.
the things that we see, God. For you are on the throne. Things are going just as you planned them, Lord. May we praise you. May we glorify you, God. In the midst of conflict, in the midst of adversity, may we give you glory. May we give you honor. As the great and mighty King. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Before we uh, close, I want to pray for the tithes and make a couple announcements and then uh, we'll have our last song. Let's pray for our tithe and offering this morning. Father, we thank you so much for, again, your continued support, God, of our church, your church, Lord, and of your people, Lord. Thank you for their love to you and their obedience to you, Lord. Thank you for continuing to, uh, to provide for us, Lord, and your people. We pray for those, God, that are in need this morning, God. We pray for those that are sick, for our friends that, God, may be in the hospital right now, God. We ask you to be with them and for the families, Lord. Father, we pray for their, their, that you would intervene on their behalf, Lord, that you would, you would lift them up, God. You raise them up, God, to your glory. And again, we thank you for uh, the finances that you provide, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to announce...